Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 17th, 2022. For regular viewers, and I hope there are many of you out there, we've had a rather busy day. We started today talking with the Paris-based philosopher Justin Smith about his new book, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. The Internet, of course, these days gets a lot of flack, but it's tremendously important for many people for many different reasons. One reason, I think, is as it as a way of memorizing, of remembering. Uh, in 2019, my guest today on the show, Kylie Leddy, who was completely unknown then, uh, wrote a, uh, an essay for the New York Times in their Modern Love Co College essay contest uh, about uh, her sister vanishing. Um, she talked in the headline about, I see her whenever I want. Much of it was in a kind of odd, surreal way online, although her sister doesn't really, unfortunately, exist anymore. Kylie has since then turned it into a new book, which is just out, The Perfect Other, about her relationship with her sister and many other things, uh, The Perfect Other, a memoir of my sister. Kylie is talking to us from New York City, from Tribeca. Uh, she's currently a graduate student getting her master's in social work at Columbia University. Uh, Kylie, this is a remarkable story, remarkably personal, intimate, upsetting story of your sister, perhaps for our viewers who are not familiar with you or your sister, you might tell us exactly what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So the book itself is about my relationship with my sister and kind of the age range where she started developing some mental health issues that transformed eventually to schizophrenia and psychosis. And then when she was 22 and I was turning 16, I was turning 17 on my 17th birthday, she passed away, we realized later on that she had committed suicide. So the book is kind of about me retroactively going back and looking at some of the signs and symptoms that we may have missed and exploring the mental health care system in general and all the ways that it can be improved. You had a very, very intimate relationship with your sister. She, she sounds quite a character on many different levels. She was uh, wonderfully supportive and loyal to you, although obviously her life had its very dramatic ups and downs. Um, this is a book in many ways about sisterhood, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely about sisterhood. And I talk in the book about how my sister willed me into existence. And just like how I was as a younger sister, you know, being so taken care of and asked for, she used to pray for me in church and just how that bond is formed. And I still consider myself a sister. I don't think that will ever change. I wonder if it's capable. I mean, do you think that it's essentially sisterhood? I mean, if it had been a brother, do you, I mean, obviously it would have been a different kind of book. But do you think one is capable of that kind of level of intimacy with a brother? That's a good question. I don't have a brother. <laughs> so right. So that's I right. And, and I have two children, a boy and a girl. So... Uh, yeah. it's, it's, you know, their relationship, certainly, uh, I don't know if my son willed my daughter into existence, but, um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it, it seems as if sisters have a, a, a particularly 
sort of intimate relationship that is is almost biological. Yeah, I think so for sure. I think that being a sister is so formational in a way. I think that it formed my sense of self. You know, I grew up looking ahead at my sister who's six years older than me and looking at each step of her life and comparing myself. I call her like a parallel line to me, you know, both growing the same rate, but we're six years apart no matter what. So kind of like that relationship of so much like shared rituals, you know, makeup rituals, all that stuff that you learn from big sister and just how important that becomes to you. It's a tragic story, of course, Kylie, and it could have happened or has happened, of course, in the pre-internet age. But as I said, uh, we began today with a show about the internet. There's a, a special internet dimension to this story. What did the internet add or detract, do you think, from this tragedy and with and from your relationship with your sister? So my essay that was in the New York Times that just kind of spurred this whole journey was about how I was using her Facebook to remember her and yeah. how it became this almost unhealthy dynamic in a sense because it, it's this strange question of holding on and letting go. You know, remembrance and then forgetting. And at a, at a certain point, almost forgetting is helpful in a sense, not having the past be so immediate. So for me, living online with her and having these remnants of her life. And, you know, I talk about in the book too, like how many mistakes were kind of solidified. You can look back at your text messages, you can overthink everything. And um, it's not, it's, I feel like it's neither good or bad. I think it's just a new area to navigate. Do you feel that you represent your generation in a peculiar kind of way? I mean, obviously, you haven't been appointed by your generation, but this generation with its dependency on text messages, on the internet, on Instagram, on photographs, on group mm -hmm. memorials, is very different from pre-internet generations, isn't it? It is. And I don't know if I'd say I represent my generation, but I do think that I am very of my generation. I think that I fall trapped to all the things that everyone my age group falls trapped to, you know, being too online, social comparison, all the detriments, mental health that come with that as well. So I'm definitely struggling with those questions and I'm trying to find some answers to them, but we'll see. <laughs> We've had a number of shows, Kylie, uh, uh, about how to bring up daughters in the internet age. We've done them with therapists, with sociologists. You're obviously, um, you're not a mother yet. Maybe you will be one day. What did you learn, do you think, in this, this terrible story that would help you with a daughter in particular and perhaps a son in terms of internet use? Something that I talk about, I think, in the essay and in the book is the sense that when my sister and I were growing up and we were using the internet, we were, we were online in a way that was so casual and informal. We weren't yet like... So much, so much, so much wasn't happening yet. You know, like we didn't have influencers yet. There weren't, you know, all these pressures. So you were recording your life with no known end to it. And it, it's kind of dangerous. I mean, I look back now, I actually deleted my Facebook because I had it since I was 11. And I was like, I don't know what I said on there at 11 years old. Like, let's just delete it. Um, so I think that growing up now with having kids one day, possibly, I would tell them just be aware of it more. Just know what you're recording, knowing what you're saying knowing the good it can do and the harm it can do as well. And just being really careful about checking your mental health and how it's affecting you. And I know your parents, sorry, I know your, your parents split up at some point during this narrative. Uh, I assume that 
they were relatively liberal with your use of social media. Did anyone try and, you know, this 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 very emotional, very moving essay years ago? My sister vanished. I see her whenever I want, which of course is is the foundations of of, of the new book. Is um, is very moving in the way in which your version uh, uh, of life online was obviously dramatically different from what had actually happened. And it's an essay about how reality dawned, a tragic reality. Um, were your parents aware of this? What did they try to control, both, both before yeah. and after the tragedy, the death of your sister? Well, I will say that in my parents' defense, my sister made my Facebook and it was not allowed. <laughs> so that was part yeah, of it. She, she definitely seems yeah. that kind of uh, woman to do that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> I love that picture of her. Um, they just showed. But yeah, so it was kind of like this thing that we had done together without our parents' permission. Um, I don't think they would have wanted me on the internet that young. And I think that when it comes to Facebook, though, it was afterwards after she passed away it it was just hard we actually ended up deleting it after the essay came out because i saved the pictures i wanted to save and the images but then it became you know it was attracting people who were just curious online or web sleuths and all that stuff that comes to that so i kind of wanted to keep it private and didn't want her life to be so public in that sense where you can actually go through and look at the pictures yourself so um you know i think we're still navigating kind of how that works, but um, we have the Instagram still available, unfortunately, and it was really hard to leave the Facebook. When you we say um, unfortunately, yeah. is it you? You would rather have this this stuff taken down. Instagram won't take it down, or it's it's just complicated. It's so it's so hard. It's um, I had a really hard time getting the Facebook deleted, and then the Instagram. I kind of just like was like, I'm not going to go down this path again. It's not harmful, really. It's just there. Um, it's a little like, ghostly to have it still there, but. Yeah, with Facebook, we didn't have a death certificate, so we couldn't actually legally declare her deceased, which meant that we had no authority over her Facebook anymore. And since she made my Facebook, I knew her password, you know, so because we were sisters like that. So I could have gone in and deleted it myself, but I was locked out because someone else had declared her deceased. It's a whole other thing, <laughs> but it was really complicated. And I think it just points to how we don't have the policies in place yet to deal with these strange new social norms. They are indeed, Kylie, strange new social norms. It's hard to imagine having this conversation 25 years ago. It's actually impossible because there was no internet, so we wouldn't have been able to talk to one another. But what about the issue of privacy and transparency? This is still incredibly raw. It must be for you and your family. Were there friends or family who, 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 who are uncomfortable with this, who, 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 who didn't want this tragedy known to the outside world? Yeah, you know, I think that everyone has been really supportive because I think that everyone close to me believes in the mission of that book, which is to spread awareness about mental illness and mental health. But I mean, some days I'm not comfortable with it. You know, I'm I'm still dealing with it and trying to figure out what it means to be so publicly vulnerable. And I'm dealing with the other side of the internet, which is, you know, just the people who can say anything they want, the hatred you can get online. And What kind of hatred? Uh, and there are so many gross people and online but what, 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 what kind of uh, trash have you had to experience have you had to deal with because of this i so i'm checking my goodreads reviews a lot more than i should be which is where people give you reviews ahead of time and publication i galleys out so um i had like one bad review and i just totally stuck to it i, I think the person didn't even read the book because they were saying like 
just factually incorrect stuff saying that like, you know, kind of stigmatizes my mental health and they, I think they had their own problems they were approaching me with. And I, it was hard to take a step back and, you know, really acknowledge that that's, that's not to do with me. That's someone else's <laughs> projections, but yeah, it's, it's scary being so publicly, you know, vulnerable like that. Has there been an element of catharsis for you? Do you think that ultimately you can, I mean, you can never really get beyond this. You can never get it out of your system. You would probably never want it to get the death, the tragic death of a, of, of a sister out of, uh, out of your system. But has there been an element of catharsis here in terms of the essay and the book and your public visibility here? There has. I think that writing the book itself was so incredibly difficult that it was kind of like being re-traumatized in a way. You're being constantly triggered. You're living the past like that. But then now, after the fact, um, being open and being honest about what happened has been cathartic. I think with mental illness, there's so much shame. There's so much silence. There's so much stigma that being able to come out there and like say our truth, say our peace, and then, you know, physically close the book and move on to the next chapter and try to let it stay in the world on its own and have its own life and kind of step away from it for a bit. I'll take a break in a minute, Kylie, and talk about mental illness after the break. But before we do that, I want to talk about your experience as a first-time writer. You wrote this essay. Did you ever have any ambitions of writing a book before you, you won this essay award for the New York Times? I did. I wanted to be a writer since I was like six or seven. Like I, as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I never really pursued it. I was kind of discouraged, like everyone's discouraged by just knowing how hard it is to make it out there um, with a writing career. So I was pursuing psychology and English in undergrad with the hopes to get my PhD someday in psychology and then go back and write a book. <laughs> like when I was 40, maybe about this subject, maybe more objective. Um, I'm obsessed with like, neuroscience. I'm a huge nerd for it. So that was the plan. And everything kind of got expedited. <laughs> this like rapid trip with this essay. Um, so That's I'm pretty still... amazing. So how long did it take you to write the book? When did you get the contract for the book? So I won the essay in May. And that week I got, you know, inquiries from agents, sat down, wrote some, um, just like some sample pages. Then we went out to publishers that November got the deal near Thanksgiving, and then finished the book by August 2020. So it took you about nine months to write the book. Yeah, exactly. And what did you learn about writing a book that you didn't expect? Um, I think that one thing I've learned is there's like a certain point I got to, I would say like 30% in where the rest of it kind of just like fell together in a way. And I'm not sure that's always going to be the case or... Next book, I don't know, it's going to be the same thing, but it kind of was comforting to see it just naturally form. Like, it, it felt really um, whole. How hateful was the process? I know I've written many books, and every time I write a book at some point in it, actually for long periods in it, I swear to myself, I'm never, ever going to do this again. Did you ever think that? No. <laughs> I think I don't want to write this book again, but I would love to write again. Um I think that for me, the hardest part has been like post-publication stuff, you know, more the marketing, more the publicity stuff, the actual writing when it was just mine, I was just doing it, working on the page by page was like really enjoyable for me. We'll was see. It quite a, a, sorry to interrupt, Kylie. Was it quite a clean process? Did you just hand the stuff in and they published it? Or did you have an editor who told you 
to go back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite? We were pretty clear in the editing process, but we had a lot of movement with the publishing um, house itself. We switched imprints three times, just like mergers. Um, well, my I, I signed at Hachette and then my editor got promoted and she switched to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And then um, they merged with HarperCollins and then we changed imprints when we got there. <laughs> so it was a lot of switching of teams and more of that stuff than anything else. I'm speaking with Kylie Leddy, the author of a first book, very young for a first author, the perfect other, highly personal book about the death of her sister, uh, the perfect other, a memoir of my sister, uh, a young woman uh, who died when Kylie was, how old were you, Kylie? I was turning 17. Turning 17, so very intimate, raw book about mental illness and uh, family life. I'm going to take a short break, Kylie, now. Um, and then after the break, I want to talk about specifically about uh, mental illness. You, you're doing your master's at Columbia in social work. So I want to talk about the, the more serious elements and aspects, not that the whole book isn't serious, but beyond yourself, what, what it tells us about mental illness in the age of the internet. So uh, we're going to take a 60-second break, and then we'll be back with Kylie Leddy, the author of The Perfect Other. Don't go anywhere, anyone. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Kylie Leddy, the author of The Perfect Other, a book about the death of her sister and mental illness. Kylie, we've done a lot of shows on mental illness, particularly amongst young people. I know you, your, your sister's um, mental illness was associated with an accident. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. She had a traumatic brain injury when she was 18. 
that definitely, I'm not sure if it caused it or was, you know, genetic predisposition and what's not, but it definitely incited some major changes and the onset of psychosis. But what's your reading in terms of, you know, we talk endlessly about the pandemic in terms of COVID, but there's another pandemic, according to a number of the people who have appeared on our show, a pandemic of mental illness, particularly amongst your generation. Is that a generalization or is it fair, do you think, in terms of mental illness? I think for me personally, I like to differentiate between mental health and mental illness. I think that what my sister was going through towards the end of her life was psychosis and schizophrenia and that severe mental illness. But I think there was definitely an increase in mental health problems, more like depression, anxiety, and a lot of that can come from being on line. While I think that mental illness is more, um, I don't know, I think it's more complicated. And what about this, again, this pandemic of anxiety that seems to have afflicted your generation? Where does that come from? Is this again, uh, triggered by online life, by Instagram, by TikTok, by Facebook, or is it something broader in your sense? I think that it's probably something to do with, you know, increased diagnosis, definitely more discussion about it, less stigma to talk about it. But I'm sure that technology has definitely affected us. Um, I can speak from personal experience that I think that social comparison is one of the worst things that we can do. And being online constantly and seeing other people's glossy, perfect lives and, you know, the highlight reel of what they're doing just makes you feel like you're missing out on something. And it's that constant FOMO that I think really gets to you. And also with anxiety, just being inundated constantly with new like news coverage and everything that's going on, it's like you can never unplug and walk away from it. What are the messages that you want to articulate in The Perfect Other about mental illness? I really want to start a conversation. And I think that something like schizophrenia and psychosis is so othering because people don't want to believe it can happen to them or anyone they know. I think that, you know, it's so scary to think about losing yourself. And when you're having a brain-based disorder like that, you are losing a sense of who you are. It's changing your personality. It's changing relationships. And it's, I think it's one of the scariest things you can go through personally. So I want to make it, you know, accessible, make it human, give it a face, give it, you know, some more, some words to it to actually describe what it's like so people will understand it better. It's very chilling. And and and, and your description of the, the violence that it, seem to have triggered in your sister is very chilling too. Um, what's your reading of that? And again, what, what is the message about the violence of, of schizophrenia and of other uh, mentally ill people? I think it was important for me to include those sections because I wanted to show how hard it is to care for somebody when they are both suffering and also inflicting suffering onto you. And, you know, show some more empathy for people who are caretaking, people who have these illnesses. But I also wanted to make sure that I was speaking from personal experience and not trying to, you know, assume that anyone else is like that. I've worked in group homes with women who had schizophrenia who were so kind, so docile, really not violent at all. And I don't know if that was my sister's head injury, if it was just something else going on there. But I didn't want to hide like shy away from the truth, but I also didn't want to generalize from it either. Kylie, we've done a number of shows about this convergence of American prisons and American mental asylums and the fact that American prisons have essentially become de facto mental hospitals for many people, particularly the less privileged, African-Americans, um, 
you, and again, I, I got to be careful making generalizations here, but my guess is that you grew up in, in, in a fairly comfortable middle-class life. Uh, what's your take on the socioeconomic dimension of mental illness, particularly when it comes to prison? Yeah, I think that one of my like theses in the book that I am writing from is the title itself, which is The Perfect Other, meaning that my sister was perfect. You know, she, she had so many privileges. She held so many opportunities that other people don't have. And in some ways, she had every opportunity to heal from this. And, you know, it still wasn't enough. So I want to highlight how different inequalities, you know, racism, socioeconomic status, all these things are impacting these people who are suffering and making it worse, exasperating it, you know, limiting mental health care access. And when it comes to incarceration, someone like my sister who was really struggling with, you know, you know, more like outlashes and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's so possible she could have easily been arrested. I think there's a stat I read recently that said like 32% of incarcerated people have an open mental health case. And I also talk a lot in the book about homelessness and how those, you know, it's kind of intertwined there too. And I know that like 25% of homeless people have had traumatic brain injury. And these are all interconnected issues that are the basis of a lot of inequality and injustice in our society. You're just at the master's level. You don't have a PhD. You haven't written anything formal on mental health, but you've done a lot of thinking about this. Finally, uh, Kylie, um, what kind of concrete steps would you like to see the government uh, pass, invest in when it comes to addressing the mental health crisis in America today? I think we need more wraparound systems. I think we need more community-based care and a lot of that comes from funding and a lot of it comes from, you know, advocacy efforts, understanding. But I think that when you're when the family is understanding what's happening and they don't have the psychoeducation, that support, then it's almost becomes like a impossible situation. Should should it become a more overt issue in politics? It's very rare that presidential debates in either party, anyone ever talks about mental health. I wonder why are people just embarrassed by it? Yeah, and that's a good question. I think that maybe comes back to the stigma of it and people not wanting to believe that it could happen to them or someone they know, keeping it arm's length in a way. Although in all the families, the Biden family, for example, there's, there's, a, there's a long history of, of mental disease and mental Ill, uh, Ill health. So it's clearly not something that's being hidden. Uh, Kylie Leddy, congratulations again on your new book, your first book, first of many, I hope, uh, The Perfect Other, a memoir of my sister, a very moving book about your relationship and your memories of your sister um, and, uh, and a discourse, a contemplation on America's uh, crisis in mental health. What else are you reading, Kylie? Perhaps a little bit more cheerful. <laughs> exactly. Um, I actually recently read The Rabbit Effect by Dr. Kelly Harding. And that's kind of about the basis of how kindness can impact health. So not only being kind to others can help the person you're talking to, but also how it can help your own health system. And um, it's kind of in that realm of positive ecology and just, you know, increasing compassion in our society, which I think we all need, especially right now. Do you have another book in the works? I do a little bit. I'm working on something, but we'll see. It's still pretty early on. I'm, I want to focus on healing, you know, more like more the positive psychology stuff, more focusing on how to recover and less about, you know, my first book was a little traumatic. <laughs> We're trying to get brighter yeah. and lighter from here. 
It'll be nonfiction, though. You don't fancy yourself as a novelist, is that right? I could see it someday, but I love nonfiction. I like the challenge of being constrained by reality. Well, I hope you'll come back on the show when you've got a new book. Kylie Leddy, the author of The Perfect Other. Congratulations on the new book. Uh, it's just out. And a must read, I think, for anyone who, who, who has strong feelings about mental illness and about young girls growing up in America today. Finally, Kylie, uh, who, who's in charge? I'm asking all my guests this on the show. Who's in charge these days? Who's running the show in March 2022? Well, speaking from my generation, <laughs> I'm going to say Charlie D'Amelio, which is kind of a joke. But I think that, you know, as someone who has so much influence in social media, it's this new realm of trying to negotiate, you know, that power of content and what you can do with that, what you should listen to and how we should consume it.